they actually have to know what they're talking about, Daisy. I think everybody's seen a webinar, heard a podcast where somebody gets on and they're being asked about an investment and they can't talk well or deeply about the investment that they've got their talking points. But if you ask them anything off script, they can't help you. And sure, it's not their primary role. But if the whole leadership team doesn't get it and you're just relying on one person to take care of the deal, how successful can you really be? As an operator, I know other investors are romanticizing multifamily investing, and I'm looking to learn from other investors' mistakes. I know you are too, and you found the right place. Welcome to Myers Methods Presents Multifamily Missteps. Hey, everybody, welcome to Myers Methods Presents Multifamily Missteps. I'm your host, Jerome, and I have another brave adventurer coming to hang out with me today for another multifamily kickstart session. And so Daisy Serrano down in Texas. Is it Austin? I think it's Austin. It is. Yes, we're right in Austin. She was kind enough to jump on the line with me today. So Daisy, how are things down there in Austin? Yeah, going amazing. You know, it's a... Nice and cloudy, perfect for running weather, so can't complain. You went running today? How far did you go? Not yet. I have to go. I, uh, I'm doing 75 hard, so I did my morning workout. Now the afternoon one will be a, a quick run. So I don't even pretend to want to know what 75 hard is. <laughs> <laughs> we'll skip that. We'll skip that. <laughs> yeah. So tell us a little bit about yourself so the listeners kind of get a frame of reference where you are, and then let's just dive into the session and see if I can add some value for you. Sounds great. Yeah, thank you for having me. Excited to chat with you and a little bit about me. I'm originally from Southern California, born and raised, and was there for my childhood through high school, college. And as of a few months ago, my husband Luke and I ended up moving out here to Austin, Texas. And it's really because of multifamily. We've been investing passively the last three years and, you know, decided we wanted to be general partners. And so made the move, packed our card and made the transition out here to Austin. But before that, I was in international education for 10 years. So worked with international clients and students from all over the world and just really enjoyed the traveling aspect and just learning more about other cultures and people from all over the world and now have transitioned that skill set left my w2 and transitioned all that skill set into the multi-family space oh she's a teacher y'all y'all better watch out she's got a ruler she's gonna pop your knuckles (laughs) (laughs) mexico style yeah oh no no okay so i mean Where do we go from here? Let's try to see if we can answer some questions and get something good out of this session. Yeah, for sure. I mean, one question that I have is around processes and procedures, right? I think a lot of us coming into the space, we recently closed on a 42 unit. And, you know, a lot of the conversation and focus is around finding deals, closing deals, asset management. But I think a lot of people don't touch on all of those back end processes and procedures that have to be there to be able to have a smooth project, right? A smooth property. And so I would love to hear your thoughts and tips on what specific platforms would be helpful to use and how you went about establishing all of those back-end procedures for your own company. Yeah. So this is interesting because you're actually syndicating and I don't know how many people are in your deals and the process that you need for 10 or 20 people is very different from the process that you need for a hundred. Can you start with the hundred person process when you only have 10 or 20? You can, but is it cost-effective? It's not. Being budget constrained and trying to actually run these businesses without a ton of overhead because 
you don't know when the next deal is going to come. And so do you want to burden the plane down with a ton of overhead is something that I think every investor, every operator struggles with. And so I think initially what most people do is they start out with some type of spreadsheet. It could be in Google, it could be Excel, but they're tracking the people that they're working with through that. There's a ton of different softwares. None of them are sponsors of the actual podcast. So I probably won't give any names, right? But there are CRMs that are available. I'll throw maybe two or three out there. Like Active Campaign is one that is super popular. Some people use MailChimp that way. And there's, what is it, Investor Software, something like that. If you Google investor or syndication CRM, it will be at least five pages of different results on softwares that you can use. Know at what point it makes the sense to make the investment. And these things can go from 10 or free on a monthly basis to several thousand dollars, all in how sophisticated you want. I think the most important things that you can do, and I'm laughing because I haven't been successful the last two years, is one, getting the K-1s out on time. Because that is what holds people up from doing their tax returns if they are somebody who files close to the deadline. I've never really had a focus on them because I always file an extension and file my taxes late in the year after everybody's done with the rush because it gives me more time to spend time with the accountant and so on and so forth. So getting the K-1s out on time, getting your distributions out on whatever basis that you set up whether it's monthly, quarterly, semi-annually, or annually, and delivering those two things when you tell people that you're going to deliver them, other things is what's going to keep the partners in your deal satisfied. I think the level under that is going to be the communications along the way. And so if you are doing a rehab project, well, how many units have been rehabbed? How much have you increased rent? Are you on budget or off budget for your capex spend? Are you on budget or off budget for your operating spend? Like some people really care about those things, but in general, they do, at least on a monthly basis, want to know, hey, we made money this money or we lost money. And if we lost money, what were the reasons why we lost money and how we're going to fix it? If that reporting, I think, is what is the most challenging up front for folks, because you're trying to put all the things in the right box. And this is why the CRM matters. But if you only got 20 people, it's pretty easy. And it's one project. It's pretty easy to just have that in a spreadsheet, grab all the emails, dump it in and send your report. When you have a hundred and you've got five different projects going, that's when you start getting a little messy and you could probably still manage it if you organize your spreadsheets well, but the software is just taking that manual effort and making it automated for you. The other piece that I guess I would think is pretty important is just where are people in the funnel, right? I don't usually recommend that people stand up to syndication business initially because it's two different businesses in one. There's the actual operating business, and you kind of touched on this a little bit. There's the operating business, finding deals, what most people talk about on podcasts, finding deals and getting them funded, so on and so on, right? And then there's actually the capital raising or the marketing business. And some people try to lump them together and say, oh, it's just the same thing. But I don't think anything is further from the truth. Most people who are operators are not great marketers. Most great marketers are not operators. Like those skill sets usually don't run in the same person. Somebody may be adequate at both, but they're not going to be top tier great. And so when you're standing up the marketing business, the actual 
capital raising piece of your business, I believe that, you know, you've got to know where the prospects are, where they are in the process. Like how likely are they actually to invest? I love when I hear somebody say, hey, I have 50 people who said they're ready to give me $50,000 and they've never done a deal because when they actually get to the finish line, everybody that I know has had somebody say they were going to give them money and either ghost them or say, hey, my situation changed. I'm not going to be able to participate. And if you haven't raised two or three times as much money as you were, you knew that you needed in order to close the deal at the altar without a bride, right? Like you and no money doesn't actually make the marriage happen. And I think it's probably the most frustrating and disappointing piece of the business for most people. I think when people are doing larger deals, congrats on the 42, you know, deals that size, it's really difficult for somebody who's never done a deal to do one of those, right? As the lead. And so they usually get engaged or involved by bringing money, right? And there's usually some type of threshold. If you're able to bring this much money, then you're in the GP. If you don't, then you're not. And I'm not saying whether that's appropriate or not. I just know that that's the way a lot of deals get structured. And so what happens though, is, you know, somebody commits to bring in a hundred or 500,000 and they maybe bring half of that if they bring any of it and the people start to shrink and they, but it's mainly because they didn't have enough going on in their marketing business to have enough people there and kind of put percentages on it. And I haven't done an experiment, but I think this is going to feel good for the people who have done this piece of the business. There's probably 10 to 20% of the people in your database who are actually going to be willing to add capital to your deal in the beginning. And that number may go up, but a lot of people are just watching. And the wealthiest people I know probably aren't going to invest in a deal with you until after they've watched you go through the cycles for a year or two, saw what happened with those deals, checked with people who went in before they went in. And then even still, they're not going to give you a pile of money the first go around because they put their feet in the water. They don't do a cannonball in the water with people. And we start looking the shortcut, right? We want to be as efficient as possible. We're trying to find that person that's going to write the $250,000 check, but that is not actually the way that you get it done. You get it done with $25,000 at a time, or if you're down to 10, $10,000 a time. And then eventually that spins up because the person giving you the 25, it shouldn't be their last 25, right? It's probably 25 of 250. And if you do the right things, then they re-up, right? Next time you have an opportunity, they're going to talk about their interests and then kind of roll into it with you there. And also with the experience, right? So if they have a great experience back to the reporting and getting the documents out on time, if you can do those things well and you communicate well, then you take off probably 90% of the things that people complain about as an experience going through the deal. The only other thing that's left after you do those two things for a passive is, did you send them a check, right? And if they make money, then all is good. But again, back to the operator and the marketer, you don't truly have a ton of people who can do both. And so figuring out what your lane is, and if you actually have the chops to do it, I suspect that you weren't super wealthy growing up, right? And you didn't have a bunch of people hanging out at your house who were talking about their million dollar real estate portfolios and driving their Ferraris and Lamborghinis and talking about spending months at Martha's Vineyard in the summer. Like that wasn't your jam. Now, so you have to change your network so that you are spending more time with people who are wealthy. And as 
you get older and when you get old like me, then your peers will have accumulated some wealth and be in a better position to partner with you. But, you know, being where you are, being young, the majority of your friends don't have a ton of investable capital. And if they do, it's going to be in the smaller amounts, right? It's going to probably be sub 50. And so you're either getting a bunch of checks or you're prospecting up and you're talking to folks that are in Generation X or baby boomers and getting them to come into your deal. I think one of the most impressive things I see people do is going in and getting, you know, aunts and uncles and mom and dad to invest, sending them checks, them getting excited, talking about how cool it is and telling their friends about how well their niece, nephew or kid is doing. And then their friends show up with checks and usually there's somebody in there that's got a little bit of change and they get a check. And again, it's for me, it's getting in tune in the boat, right? You go out, you come back, you show everybody what you got. And then more people want to go out you next with you the next time you go fishing. And I think that is what is really sustainable. It's predictable. And I think it is and will be the difference maker between somebody who's kind of one and done and somebody who builds a sustainable business that continues to grow for however many decades you want to be in real estate business. A lot of people want to be profitable multifamily operators, but lack the knowledge, deal flow, experience, and capital to be successful. They often try to overcome these challenges out of order, slowing or eliminating their ability to get their next deal done. We've developed a framework that allows them to gain the knowledge they need to find profitable deals. When they do, they create the time and location freedom, as well as the generational wealth they desire for their family. The Myers methods of multifamily investing have proved to be the fastest way to establish credibility and properly grow an apartment portfolio. If you want to know more about our four-step process, jump over to MyersMethods.com to get our free four-step guide to getting into multifamily investing. Let's get back to the episode. Yeah, that's that's super helpful. I think, you know, even going back to what you said earlier, right, building a sustainable business. And, you know, we don't want to always be in the business, right? Yeah, let's want to grow it into a space where, you know, it can run without us being part of it, right? And part of that goes back to what you talked about with, you know, the skill set with being an operator and a marketer. Do you mind touching a little bit more on those pieces in terms of what that skill set is? If you see a good operator that's performing well, what are those things they're doing or looking at? And for a marketer, that's doing it well. What are those focuses for them as well? Ooh, so this one is going to go deep and I'll, I'll see how far I can go. And you're going to make me do it all from memory, which is amazing. But let's start with the operator because I think that is the one that actually makes the business go, right? The marketer feeds the operator. And so the operator is going to be somebody, I think one, they're going to need to understand some construction, right? Because when they go in and look at the deal, they've got to see what needs to be done here. A lot of folks want to rely on contractors. They want to rely on the property manager, but neither one of those folks are making the budget. They're going to have input into the budget, but they're not making the budget. And if their budget is wrong, they're charging you a fee. They're not going to not get paid because their budget was wrong, unless you do something called a lump sum contract. And if you do that, there's going to be all kinds of fat in it, which makes it more than likely inefficient because they're trying to make sure that there's absolutely no way that they lose money on the deal. Now, so understanding that piece, then I think the last kind of key component for operators, somebody who understands business, like what we're doing as multifamily operators is no different than if you were doing M&A for a small business, right? 
we're buying businesses. Whether people actually understand that or not, they think they're buying buildings, but you're buying a business and real estate is attached to it. And because the real estate is attached to it, you're able to leverage it up to like 80%, right? But you need to understand what a profit and loss statement looks like. You need to understand what the drivers are for revenue. You need to understand what the drivers are for expenses and your ability to manipulate or maneuver those in order to grow the net operating income. Because that is what's going to determine what your property is worth on the back end. Yeah, people talk about cap rates and all this other stuff. That's great. But the thing that you can't control that, that's macro, right? That's the environment that you're in for the market you're in. You can control your net operating income. And so understanding our rent's actually going to be able to be raised. When I see somebody getting ready to buy a deal and they can only bump the rents $50, but they've got $7,000 rehabs, they're not going to make any money on the deal. You just can't. Mathematically, it doesn't work. And so being able to do that math you'll be able to identify when something's a real opportunity and when it's a dud. The difference between leads and deals is what I call it, right? Same letters, different spellings. Leads will make sure that you lose money. Deals, you got enough cushion where if something goes wrong, you're still going to be able to make money for you and your partners. Probably the last piece, and I said business, and I guess this falls under business, but there's a project management piece. The project has to be managed, but also the people within the project have to be managed. And I think the ability for someone to be that project manager, to not just use authority, but use influence in order to get things to move to the place that we want them to move is kind of the secret sauce there. You might need the property manager to do something they wouldn't normally do. And you can't threaten to end the contract in order to get that done. I guess you could, but you're only going to be able to play that card once, right? And they're probably going to get you back in some other way because, well, they control your purse strings more often than not when it comes to the expenses. If I move over to the marketer side, the thing that I think is most important about marketing is if they don't know you, they can't flow you. And I stole that from a man, Carl Sona. There's some other people who've talked about it, but if they don't know you, they can't flow you. And so you've got to have some reach. You've got to have some reach. People have to know who you are, what you're doing, what you're about, and how you're different from the other people, right? Because that's what they're going to connect with. I've made this mistake. I've seen other people making the mistake today. Nobody cares about your logo. Nobody cares about your brand. When they write the check, when they wire the money, especially when you're early on, they're wiring it to Daisy, right? They're wiring it to Jerome. Yeah, Jerome's got whatever company he has, but that's not who they're trusting with their money. They're trusting a person. And so the sooner that you can get people down through the no like, and trust funnel, I know people talk about triad, they talk about triangles, but it's a funnel. The more people who know you get to make the decision whether or not they like you. Those people who like you get to decide whether or not they trust you. And if they trust you, then they'll do a transaction with you. I don't think that most people who think they're going to raise money actually get the fact that more people need to know them. In fact, if we go back to the numbers, right, if you need 20 people to fund your deal because you're doing, what, $25,000 a pop and I don't know, what's that, $500,000? Do the math in my head, right? But anyway, 20 people, $25,000. Somebody will do the math and tell me. I think that's half a million, right? So you want to buy a $2 million deal, you need half a million dollars raised. You need 20 people to come in and do that. Well, if only 10% are going to fund, you need 200 people who trust you in order to get to your half a million. And sure, you might have 2,500 connections on LinkedIn, but if you've only talked to 10 of them and only three of them actually can tell, hey, this person's married, 
They went to this school. They live in this part of the world. They like to go running on cloudy days in Austin, Texas. Like if they don't have any of those things, they're probably not going to give you money. And the gag that I've been running lately is, hey, uh, would you rather give somebody $50,000 and let, or let them hang out with your kids? And most people are ready to send the kiddos away. And, you know, so to think that somebody's going to give that much money to you and you don't have a meaningful relationship with them, I think is idealistic at best and probably foolish at worst. And so for the marketing person, they've got to have an impeccable reputation. They've got to have the ability to individualize and get to know people, build trust really quickly. And they have to have reach. And I think the other thing that I probably should have slipped in here as I kind of developed this, this idea, because I've never actually been asked this question, is they actually have to know what they're talking about, Daisy. I think everybody's seen a webinar, heard a podcast where somebody gets on and they're being asked about an investment and they can't talk well or deeply about the investment that they've got their talking points. But if you ask them anything off script, they can't help you. And sure, it's not their primary role, but if the whole leadership team doesn't get it and you're just relying on one person to take care of the deal, how successful can you really be? And I think we miss that pretty regularly. I think we just totally blow that. So I think those are the things that are probably most important from a marketing operating standpoint. And I'll probably miss some stuff, but that's what I think off the cuff. Yeah, I know that very different skill sets, right? When it comes to the operation side and the marketing piece and something that you reminded me of when you were speaking of the marketer's perspective is the branding, right? I heard somebody say recently that branding should really be the essence of who you are, right? It should expand who you are into social media, into whatever platform, right? You're communicating on. And that resonated a lot with me because, you know, for Luke and myself, I think at first, when I first came into the space, I felt like I had to fit into a mold of what other people are doing or saying or how they're communicating and all these different parts of the puzzle, right? And then I realized pretty soon that I needed to be myself, right? That people resonated with Daisy, not with Make It Rain Capital, right? Make It Rain Capital is an extension of who we are, who Luke is and who I am individually. And of course, as a couple, right, as well. But yeah, thank you for sharing. I think with those being very different skill sets, like understanding my own value and what I bring to the table, I'm able to better decipher what my strengths are and where to focus my attention. Yeah, I mean, I remember just using my logo, not sharing my voice much of anything. And I was like, <laughs> why isn't anybody showing up to hang out with me? And they're like, who are you? And how do we know you? And the moment that I was willing to share who I was for all the people that it turns off, there's enough people who show up and they're really excited to participate and engage in that way. So I hear you. And I think you're absolutely on the right path to get everything that you want. Thank you. It's quite vulnerable too. I don't know if you would agree on that piece, right? Putting yourself out there and being you right on camera and, and off camera alike, but it's a little liberating as well. It's pretty liberating, I should say. Yeah. I think once you grow into the person that you're proud of, then the vulnerable piece isn't all that challenging. When you're walking around and you got shame and guilt and you know you're not being the person that you should be, 
then you hang out there in that space and try to just lurk in the shadows. Totally. Well, thank you so much, Jerome. This was awesome. And, you know, it's always nice connecting. And I'm glad I was able to, you know, get a lot of these insights from you. You've been in the space and, you know, look, and I look up to you a lot. So I appreciate the, the invitation. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not just saying Very that on nice camera either. <laughs> <laughs> I'll send all you the right, check. All right, I'll be ready for it. <laughs> yeah. All right. So that's a wrap, ladies and gentlemen. Until the next time, the pack's with you. We'll talk soon. You made it to this juncture. So you really love what we shared on this episode of Myers Methods Presents Multifamily Missteps. Do us a favor. Give us a five-star rating. Give us a review. And share this with somebody who's interested in multifamily investing. Until the next time, the pack is with you.